This is the Skin in the Game VC podcast, hosted by Tom Wallace, entrepreneur turned venture capitalist and the managing partner at Florida Funders. You'll learn from the best about investing in early stage tech companies, so you too can gain the confidence and find the tools that help you succeed as an angel investor. Are you ready to get some skin in the game? Hello and welcome. My name is Tom Wallace and I'm one of the partners of Florida Funders and uh, excited to have you here today for another episode of Skin in the Game, our podcast that we do a couple times a month. And we have some exciting guests on today that you're going to meet very briefly here. Uh, But before we do that, I want to welcome for the first time a co-host and that is one of my fellow partners at Florida Funders, Saxon Baum. Tom, thanks for having me. Been looking forward to this for years. I know it's an honor to be on the show with you. So I'm really excited about it. Well, I don't know about that part, but uh, it'll be fun. So what we thought we'd do a little differently with this podcast and, and with Saxon joining is talk a little bit about just some uh, state, of, state of the union things. What are, what's going on in early stage tech? What do you see out there? What's going on in the economy? Really, everything's open for a discussion. Uh, but the world we live in is early stage tech. Yeah. Sax, what are you seeing out there? Well, you know, every quarter, PitchBook comes out with their their reports, right? And it's it's data from the prior quarter, but I always like to dissect it and see what's going on. It's been fairly bleak, I would say, over the last few years, year or so. Um, but we do have some promise coming out. Uh, although I will share some stats that I don't love. I want to follow that up talking about AI. I know it's something we've been following forever. And really, the good news came from funding in AI. Funding in AI is at an all-time high, and that's driving some some really good numbers for the quarter. Uh, but in and early, some people think that's a little overhyped, but we can get we'll get into that. And not only overhyped, but it's really being pushed into a few companies in terms of these big deals getting done. And we've seen the data skewed that way as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so Nvidia, when, top of the list. I mean, that's. I mean, if you would have bought that, <laughs> you would have been doing pretty well over the last few months. Though, let's be serious. Yeah. Yeah. Good question. <laughs> It's hard to believe that stock's not overpriced, but we won't get into that. Well, we thought that during COVID, too. It got crushed, and now look where it's at again. Yeah, it's yeah. true. Um, so real quick, just on the VC data side, um, early stage funding was down 45% year over year in terms of dollars invested. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's any surprise. I think nope. you know what we've seen is, is what we've seen. It's been slow. And then in terms of deal count, deal count is down 35% year over year. This is just looking at early stage. This is extrapolating out some numbers. But any insight there? Anything well, I you think? think? It's all, I mean, you know, I think it's all the trickle-down effects. So the IPO market has been pretty shut down. Now, there's a little hope there. Kava went public and a couple other companies had some pretty successful public offerings just in the last month. So um, I think it starts there. M&A has been shut down. Uh, at the very highest levels are, are curtailed a lot by um, the uh, FTC and, and what's her name, Lynn, the woman that runs that, that is suing Microsoft for yep. the Activision. Yeah, she's the suing, antitrust. She's suing Coinbase. Yeah. She's suing everybody. And uh, the, <laughs> the, the, the Biden administration has made it very clear that big tech is not better tech. Yeah. And they're taking, uh, taking a very uh, draconian approach and maybe arguably not free enterprise. But so I think that all trickles down and get and affects us in early stage. So um, hopefully we're starting to see a little bit of that turnaround. Uh, one thing I think we're all aware of, but I, I don't like to assume things, is in in venture capital and private equity, there is still a ton of money sitting there on the sidelines that these companies have raised that they either have to deploy or give back to their investors. And they're not known for giving it back and to they're investors. They're not making management fees that they're giving money back to investors. Exactly. And so I do think we've seen, and, and even with our portfolio, private equity has picked up a little bit. We're seeing minority recaps, majority recaps happening. To your point, IPO market has been slow, but Kava, I mean, if they're going to prove that the IPO market, there's a window there. There was even a Korean barbecue place that went public I saw that, that did pretty well. Yeah, and there was saying, you know, maybe it's this, uh, all these food places, they're going to go public first, they're going to pave the way, and then the software companies come next. Uh, who knows? But I think Kava showed there is some liquidity out there, it seems, in the IPO market. Yeah, and the other thing I would say, you know, going back to the trickle-down theory, is the NASDAQ even though it's very concentrated, it being what its best start in the history of the NASDAQ since we've been recording, what's it up, 45% the first, yeah. uh, since the first of the year or something like that. Uh, I think that's affecting, we're seeing that helping uh, early stage as well. And that speaks to a lot of that's been driven by AI. 
Um, and AI is, you know, there's a lot of, like you said, there's a lot of funding going, going into AI. Is it being a little overdone? You know, we saw this, what, 18, 24 months ago with blockchain. Yep. You know, this tends to be, I, I hate to criticize uh, VCs because we are one, but it tends to be a very lemming kind of mentality in this business. Everybody seems to chase the same thing. So right now, everybody's chasing AI. It's it's the hype cycle, right? The hype cycle in AC and, and the hype cycle in VC. And this has been talked about. A lot of venture funds will follow that hype cycle. Blockchain and Web3, what is it, three years ago, any deck that we saw that put blockchain or Web3 on there, it was getting five or six times the valuation or wanting to get five or six times the valuation. I think we're sort of seeing that same thing now, right? We're oh, yeah, we don't see a deck without AI in it. <laughs> Every single one, dot AI. Is it real AI? Is it not? I mean, you really have to dive in. I wanted to ask you something, Tom, about that. You know, kind of your theory on these hype cycles. And when you're in one of these hype cycles, do you think from an investment standpoint, you should sort of wait and and see what's real and let some companies fizzle out or do you you know play that bleeding edge try to take some risk and you know is is the juice worth the squeeze in that sense well i think timing's everything in investing so if you get in early and you can ride some of it i i think i don't think it's i think it, it tends to be overhyped and i think you have to be cautious we did that at florida funders and we didn't go crazy with Web3 and blockchain, but we made some investments because we thought they were good founders, all the basics that we look for in an investment, good founders, good business model, um, skin in the game from the founders, yep. Yep. Um, you know, all the due diligence we typically do. So if they if something meets that criteria and they're in that, which is now AI, then yeah, I think it makes sense to make those investments. But I don't think going crazy, which was which is what I think some of the tier one VCs tend to do is is uh, the best approach and you look you know a lot of them are underwater right now with a lot of these web3 deals they did i think though a big difference between just looking at the the two most recent hype cycles web3 and ai web3 really still hasn't hasn't had mass adoption in the market right you're not seeing mass adoption of web web3 in the enterprise we're hearing about it it's, it's going to come but and correct me if I'm wrong, but we still really haven't seen the largest companies in the world take on Web3, where AI, that's not the case. I mean, you're seeing the largest companies in the world integrate AI in with their products, spinning out whole AI divisions. You know, what do you think about that? It's Yeah, I think they have what I think all the big companies had Web3 projects. Yeah. Did they get off the ground? Did they get the momentum? Are they investing heavily in them? Um, I don't know. You could argue that, but I mean, use another, throw another one of these these uh, emerging, uh, game changing technologies in there. Let's look at Meta, uh, and you know, and the augmented virtual reality and the whole metaverse, and look at what Meta has spent on Reality Labs, over fifty billion dollars, and they have very little to show for it. Yeah. So um, yeah, I you know I think it's it's you know, there's no there's no one single answer, and I think you, you know we just. Uh, um, diversify. That's another one of the key principles of, of investing, right? And uh, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Yeah. And I think the meta thing is interesting, too, because now with with Apple's AR, VR goggles coming out, it'll be very interesting to see if mass adoption takes place in AR and VR. You know, I look at Apple when they come out with a device, it's just connecting another part of the world, right? It's connecting another piece of their ecosystem. So having that come in and being able to connect with your phone and your iPad and your Mac, I think that we might see a little bit more AR, VR adoption for Apple users, but the, the jury's still out on that. Well, my personal opinion on AR, VR is that we need a killer app. And I don't think gaming is the killer app for yeah. AR, VR. I mean, it, is gaming going to be a big part of it? Yes. But is that education? That would be my guess. Healthcare. There needs to be a killer app for, for uh, AR, VR, and even for the metaverse. But I haven't seen that yet. So we'll see. But again, time is everything. You can be too early. You can be too late. I think we're getting the high sign to uh, wrap up here. So uh, we got our guests coming on. So we'll take awesome. a break and be right back with you. Looking forward to it. Hello, uh, this is Tom Wallace again. We're back with you and uh, really excited about today's guest. We have two uh, young entrepreneurs, founders who are really, uh, on, look, looks like they're onto something special. It's a, it's a, uh, you're going to hear all about these guys, but start, let them introduce themselves. So uh, Michael, Matthew, welcome and uh, please uh, introduce yourself. Yeah, thank you. My name is Michael Vigasans. I'm a co-founder and the president over here at Lula. 
And I tend to work more on the business side of things. And then Matthew can tell you a bit more about what he does at Lula. Um, Matthew Yegazan's his twin brother, and uh, I'm the one that unfortunately is stuck making all his actually crazy ideas come to reality. <laughs> you guys so, look yeah, nothing Matthew's alike, funny. by the way. You two look nothing alike. I mean, it's because I shaved, so I do that on purpose. But I had a beard. Most people say, oh my god, you guys have beards in a cab, it's impossible to see you and tell you guys apart. Like, no, F that. I'm shaving, we're gonna look different. I don't wanna get those comparisons today. That's working, because it's very helpful. Michael's <laughs> Michael's the bearded one, Matthew, no beard. These for you people who are just listening, these guys are identical twins. <laughs> Literally identical. They are hard to tell apart. Also, so, Michael had braids, like cornrows up until two days ago. So Oh <laughs> you, you got your summer buzz cut. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I shot my hair off. <laughs> All right, so these guys are the class of college dropout tech guys, right? D d yeah. So uh, you dropped out of you were you were doing something in college. You started something in college, and then you you know d tell us about that, and, and that kind of led to what you're doing now. And we'll get to that. Oh, I mean, it was such a journey, and you guys, you guys are going to hear so many things you never heard. And, and I'll just go back to it. So a couple of years ago, and this was around 2016, around 2016, Matthew and I were just starting off at Babson. And I really had, I really wanted Papa John's pizza one night and they wouldn't deliver to campus. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool if there was an app that let me rent a car from another student? So think Turo or think Get Around, but just for college students. And I shared the idea with Matthew and he said, why don't we build it? And so we built the ugliest app you've ever seen. <laughs> but it was just good enough. I mean, you it couldn't was, even process payments. Yeah, on the, payments the payments only work like 30% of the time. And so even though we tell students all the time, oh, you could pay through the app, they were still paying on Venmo. So God knows how many transactions we missed our cut on. <laughs> and there was no insurance. By the way, there was no insurance in the early days. So 2016, we're working on this in between classes on the weekend, just for fun. Uh, 2017, we end up launching it on campus. Again, just in between classes on the weekend for fun, not really serious or anything like that. And then in the summer of 2018, it starts to pick up some traction. And in the fall of 2018, the app goes viral. It becomes one of the top apps on the app store. It becomes the second highest ranked car sharing app in the country. It's so working by now, better. I take it. It's now you can pay on it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, the other crazy the other crazy thing too is like we had always done we had heard the Brian Chesky thing of like you want to launch as many times as possible to build excitement around it. So we launched a bunch of times on our campus. And then our big launch like nationwide was September first, twenty eighteen. And I remember telling my mom the day before we launched, I was like if we end up on 25 campuses in year one, it'll be a success. Within like three or four months, we had members of more than 500 campuses in all 50 states. Where and were so, you guys based out of during this? This was, so we obviously, we literally started it in our dorm room. By the time the app goes viral, at this point, we're living above a salon. <laughs> we were living off about a mile off campus and we were just basically living to Matthew's point, above a salon in Wellesley, Massachusetts. And Lula was pretty popular on Babson's campus, in Bentley University, Amherst. I got in Massachusetts schools. UMass Amherst, Framingham. So, I mean, that's where we got our early traction. We ended up getting onto the equivalence of Barstool Sports. There, there's some actual, like, regional Barstool Sports-like companies. I forget what the name of of, of this particular one in Massachusetts was, but we ended up getting onto their Instagram page and onto their socials and that blew us up. So we were literally the second highest ranked car sharing app in the country at, at, for a small period of time. And it grew so quickly. I remember during that time trying to raise capital and coming out to San Francisco and actually renting cars uh, from users out here in San Francisco. So we, we, we quickly became pretty neat. We were, we were available nationwide. You got, even got to the point, like we would come out with an ad. Again, this was all just two man team. We would come out with an ad or an, uh, some sort of marketing ploy. And within 24 hours, we would see get around 
had the same exact marketing ploy and they were trying to use our same exact advertisements. So we come out with a Jeep and orange background. They come out with a Jeep and purple background. They take our wording and funny enough, <laughs> we found out that one of the kid, one of the people on their marketing team was actually a kid that graduated high school with us. And so I guess he saw everything on our He was Instagram. following everything on your guys' pages. Yeah. That's too funny. Hey, imitations is sincere and form of flattery, right? Isn't that what they say? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. the one thing I I got to believe it was a big it was popular because the average I mean you can't rent a car if you're under 25, right? Isn't really hard to yeah. do. That that's exactly correct, and and that's and and that is why it went viral because at the time we became the first and the only company in the U.S. that was really allowing people under the age of 25 to rent cars without really any restrictions or any underage fees or anything like that. So even Zipcar, they did let you rent a car if you were a college student, but you had to have a membership. You had to be on certain campuses. And so it was, for lack of a better word, the wild, wild west on the Lula Rides platform, but there was a ton of opportunity created there. And that's really where we start learning a lot about insurance. And so what's going on on the insurance side of things, this is where Matthew and I start thinking a lot about insurance. What, what ends up happening during this time is as the business is growing, uh, well, we eventually needed to figure out how do we get insurance coverage for all of these rentals? And one of the things that surprised us was, well, number one, it was really, really difficult to get insurance coverage for the rentals. Yeah. So we actually that. went ahead. Yep. And that's a crazy story in and of itself. So we went ahead and we talked to a ton of brokers, a ton of agents. Nobody could figure out how to actually help us secure a policy. They also didn't want to because they thought this is an, a company that's not venture-backed. They're going to require some sort of minimum earned premium from the insurance company to make sure it's worth their investment and their time. Um, so they're, like, they're not going to be able to pay it even if an insurance company wants to work with them. And then they also were like, it's 18 year olds. So no insurance company is going to actually even bite on this. And so that's where Michael, Michael and I start to learn how to represent ourselves. And we start essentially acting as our own broker. And we put together, again, at, at a certain point, I think we got rejected by 47 insurance carriers. And at a certain point, we had the technology ready to launch. We had all these kids wanting to use the app, but our lawyers wouldn't let us launch without insurance. And neither were, neither were the universities because the administrations were starting to catch on to what we were doing. They're like, you're not going to get on campus if you don't have insurance. And so we emailed all 47 insurance companies a headline, messaged all their CEOs with a headline that said, earn 55 or generate $55 million in revenue in the next five years. And we sent them an explanation and I knew they weren't going to get on call with me because they always ignored me. And so I sent them <laughs> the presentation and then the script to the presentation so they can see the logic behind the numbers. Um, only two of them responded. One of them ended up giving us a quote and we ended up going with them and that's how we launched. Hell yeah. Yeah. And perseverance, I love it. Who was the insurance company? Which one? That was Prime Insurance. Prime Insurance out of Sandy, Utah. The CEO that we connected with was Rick Lindsay. To this day, Rick Lindsay is probably one of the people I respect most in the insurance industry. He's creative as shit, and he prints money. Everybody else is losing money in insurance, he's printing, so. Staying you know, innovative, fun. staying in front of everybody on that side. Yeah, yeah he's great. And so well, I, I give you guys, the other thing, is at the time, you're what, how old were you when you were doing this? At this point, we're 20, 21 years old. And how many 20, 21 year olds are getting excited about insurance? <laughs> Or even well, thinking about insurance. I don't know what insurance is. Yeah, honestly, I don't, I don't need insurance. Yeah. That's bullshit. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll tell you this, and, and we can talk about why I get so excited about insurance. But the thing that, and, and I try to tell my friends this, and I try to tell people as we're going through the hiring process, but the fascinating thing about insurance is I say, just go to New York and look at every single person, look at every phone, look at every car, look at every building, even look at the hot dog stands, the actual hot dogs you're eating. All of that's covered by insurance. And so insurance is a product that really touches every aspect of your life. And to me, that's extremely, extremely exciting. And the other thing that's exciting about insurance to me is early on in my career, I thought I wanted to be a psychologist. And then eventually I thought I wanted to go ahead and study econ, economics. And so for me, insurance is this beautiful intersection between psychology, behavioral economics, and then also statistics. But 
getting back to the car sharing app, what it, what ends up happening happening is we start obviously figuring out how do we get insurance coverage to cover all of these rentals. The surprising thing to us was once we secured the policies to actually have adequate coverage on each rental, the surprise was we were actually not getting very much guidance from either the brokers or the actual carriers themselves. So we had to figure out risk management, policy management, and then also claims management. So on the risk management side of things, initially we would conduct MVR checks. We quickly found that that was super, super expensive. What's an MVR? That's a motor vehicle record check. So we just wanted to go driver's license check. Yeah, okay. we wanted to go ahead and see whether you had a warrant out for your, your arrest or you had traffic violations and and that could be expensive. Yeah. And so we Yeah, don't pull that up on Saxon. It's it's not it's not <laughs> it's pretty. It's not pretty. It's not pretty. <laughs> you know, but, I mean, look, there's there's other there's a lot of interesting stuff that you can do there. And at the time we were really thinking through how do we assess risk? Uh, when somebody signs up without actually having to pay for a background check. And so we quickly realized that there's a lot of really interesting data points that you can pull on a person when they sign up to determine whether they're high risk or low risk. I won't get into all of it. I'll just give you one, one interesting thing. You can look at somebody's email age. How long has that email address been around? Has that email address been around for three hours or seven years? You think about somebody that's using the same email address they've used for the last seven years, it's a very different risk profile than somebody that just went ahead and created an email address within the last hour. Absolutely, they don't have right? a bur- they don't have a burner email. It's their real email. Yeah. They're not especially trying to hide from anybody. Yeah, especially if it's tied to like a unique domain, like a work domain or a .edu email or .gov. So like each each one of those types of domains, you can add a different type of weight to that variable to determine what type of risk somebody poses. And something as simple as that is free to do, and that's what we were doing. Yeah. So how do you go and, from being a car rental company to completely, is it a pivot or how do you look at it and getting go, going down the complete insurance path? It's, really, it's a really funny story, but when the business basically dies, wait, I don't think they know that story. So let's go ahead and take a few steps back. So one Take us back, not, boys, take us back. I don't think you guys are aware of this part because we did not want to go ahead and start saying this entire story when we first met. So you remember us four, we met in the summer of 2020. Actually, I met Florida Funders in August 2017 for the first time. I, I think it was a, an intern or an analyst. Somebody passed on us, but I would have probably passed on that business too. <laughs> now, one thing you guys don't realize, this is, and a lot of, and this story is a bit elongated, but the reason I say it is it's extremely important in terms of why Matthew and I are the way that we are. So. In 2018, the app goes viral. In 2019, the app is just moving along and, and we're working our way through and, and we're just grinding. And we had moments of success. We had moments where we felt like it was the end of the world. But in Q2, Q3 of 2019, uh, Matthew and I determined that, hey, it's probably an appropriate time to go ahead and start raising some capital uh, from VCs and whatnot. Appropriate because we had no money. <laughs> we had no money. Yeah. Necessary. No <laughs> necessary. And so basically that was really our first time ever trying to raise real venture. And it's a crazy story. We end up reaching out to 532 investors. The 526 investor that we reached out to was Ali Reza Mazur from Plug and Play Ventures. He ended up inviting us to go ahead and pitch and they ended up writing a check. Now, the funny thing is, Plug and Play Ventures, they actually own this office that we're in. So just funny how the world kind of comes full circle. Now, that was our that was in Q2 slash Q3 of 2019. Well, important to note, the first 525 investors passed or ignored us. Um, investor 526, Ali Reza gives us a chance. The rest, the last six investors, investors 527 through 32, they also passed. Yeah. And so that's why you oftentimes hear Mike when I say we're, we're probably the most rejected founders we've ever met because we got rejected by all those guys. Then we tried to raise capital like outside of the Bay Area, New York, Boston, Miami, everywhere. So it was probably 600 plus rejections in just 2019 alone. And then over the course of Lula rides and even early Lula that we're doing today, 
Um, we got rejected by Mass Challenge, Tech Stars, Y Combinator like five or six times. And so all that's important context is you'll start to see how it shaped Michael and I throughout our journey. Yeah, this sounds so like my May, dating journey, the number of rejections you guys have had. So so in late, in late 20, so, so what happens is Q2, Q3, Q4, Matthew and I really, that's our first attempt at actually trying to fundraise legitimately. And we end up, we end up getting in contact with a group of very high net worth individuals. These are high profile individuals that you guys probably know very, very well. And we actually end up getting them to agree in 20, in late 2019, we agreed a terms they were going to make at the time a one to $2 million investment. Matthew and I thought that that was obviously a life amount. That was a life changing amount of money for us at the time. And very naively, Matthew and I took them for their word, and we actually stopped talking to any other investors because we said, oh, we have our investors here. We're going to move forward. And by the way, they also kept going and saying, hey, you should start hiring, start, start growing the team. And month after month, we kept saying, hey, where's the money? When are you guys going to sign the contract? And we first met them in August 2019. By December of 2019, no money has been wired. In January of 2020, they actually come to our office. They meet our entire team. They take Matthew and I to the back of the office. And at this point, they knew that we were low on capital and we were basically running on fumes. And they said to Matthew and I, congratulations, you've now entered the trough of sorrow. And they renegotiated the entire deal. Matthew and I agreed to sell the company, sell more than 50% of the company to them and give up two board seats. And the reason for that was we had just hired some people. They moved to Miami and I was like, I cannot go out and tell these people that we can't pay them. So Matthew and I agreed to this deal. One of the individuals ends up posting us on his LinkedIn and his website. So Matthew and I are all excited. We end up having a celebratory meal with the group on a Tuesday. We agreed that the first board meeting would be the following Monday. Because all, all we were thinking about was how can we pay the bills for everything? We were about to run out of capital. Like um, we had maybe $3,000 in the bank and these guys were willing to write us a check for a million dollars. Albeit it wasn't a million at the seven or $8 million cap, which had been originally agreed upon. It was like a million at $2 million cap. But Michael and I were just so desperate to keep the business alive and make sure that everybody in the in the main room outside had jobs. Yeah. And so that's why Michael and I said yes. So then the celebratory dinner was a Tuesday in Fort Lauderdale, and then the board meeting was scheduled for Monday. And that Saturday, Matthew and I woke up to an email saying that they decided to no longer move forward with the deal. It was very like 7.37 in the morning or something like that. Yeah. Like Saturday morning, not even with our relationship, they didn't even have the courtesy to call. It was just like email Saturday morning and then yeah. And we wanted and we wanted to send them a message ripping them. But looking back on hindsight, like we obviously made a bunch of errors ourselves, but like you're it was there was so many raw emotions. Like Michael and I saw it writing on the wall, we were gonna miss payroll for that business, like so many things were going on to our, in our mind, and we wanted to rip them to shreds in a message. Sure, who wouldn't? But this is like an incredible lesson as to why you shouldn't burn your bridges because Michael and I actually type out the email. And we decide not to send it. We just did that exercise of like put everything on paper to feel better, but never actually send it. Three or four months later, when the pandemic has already killed our business, our car sharing app to the shutdown college campuses, we get a call from one of these guys and he tells us something along the lines of, Hey, I've been, uh, I've been, uh, I've been contracted by the military to help them launch a car sharing program on military bases in Germany and the United States. The insurance companies want us to screen their drivers, administer policies and manage claims in a specific way. Uh, and we need your help. And uh, Michael and I, of course, are trying to pitch that um, like, hey, we have this beautiful app. Yes, we can help you on the insurance side, but we have this car sharing app. You can white label and do all this stuff. And they're just like, we don't care. We just care for the insurance software. And that's where Michael had the idea of, all right, let's repurpose our insurance side of the software and make it available through an API. And that's where the idea comes for Stripe for insurance. But that opportunity only comes because Michael and I didn't burn the bridge. He didn't send the email. 
The old 24 hour rule, huh? Yeah. Well, there are some other things and, and this is all leading up to it. So March slash April of 2020 comes around. Obviously college campuses shut down. At that point, we're already running on fumes. And this is where the story really takes a good turn or a bad turn at the time. Now it's a great story. And this is what I don't think you guys realize. March slash April of 2020, the business dies. So we officially run out of money. The company bank account was negative 2,800. We missed payroll. We actually had to lay off the entire company. Matthew and I, we didn't have much in savings, but Matthew and I's personal bank accounts go negative as well. Matthew and I had to sell our cars to try to pay the team and pay and make payroll. And people say, oh, were you driving nice cars? It was like, no, it was a Nissan Versa and a Ford Focus. <laughs> and, and that's what we sold. And even my stimulus check, $1,200, I, I, I threw that out at a team member. And so I always tell people, you need to realize where Matthew and I are March slash April of 2020. <laughs> Matthew and I have been working on this business for four years. We are now in our early 20s. We dropped out of school, which we had scholarships for. So we have a failed business. We have no formal education. We have no college degree, no money. We're living in our childhood bedroom. And we're looking at our families and we said, these people came from Cuba. They came from Puerto Rico. They made all of these sacrifices to give us a better opportunity. And what do we have to show for it? And Matthew and I had been giving a lot of thought to insurance. And we said, all of these challenges that we're facing from an insurance perspective are probably being faced by other companies as well. And what we experienced with the U.S. military in terms of launching their car sharing program, that was market validation for us. We said if an entity this large is also struggling with insurance and this insurance infrastructure, imagine who else is struggling with that as well. And so that's where we start thinking about, hey, this insurance infrastructure that we built, what if we could isolate it, consolidate it into an API form factor and build it in such a way that other companies could use it? And I said, if we could do that, then we could build Stripe for insurance. And in the same way that Stripe's payment API eliminates the need for companies to build payment infrastructure, I said, what if we can build an insurance API that eliminates the need for companies to build their own insurance infrastructure? And so the reason that I go ahead and I give you that extremely long background and that extremely long background. Oh, it's a great story. Love it. People often say, what are some of the learnings that you had that first business that you went ahead and applied that second business. I always say if a founder or a company can be one of four things, a company can be customer obsessed, product obsessed, competitor obsessed, or in today's day and age, a company can be fundraising obsessed. When I think about that first business, we were truly product obsessed and fundraising obsessed. Matthew and I would sit around and try to, and try to debate pixels and colors on the, on, the, on the UI UX for seven hours in a day. And if we weren't doing that, we would go ahead and think about, oh my gosh, what metrics would get an investor excited so that we can go ahead and raise a million dollar seed round and get the TechCrunch headline. And we were very much fundraising obsessed and product obsessed. And I think a lot of first time founders go through that. When that business dies, when you think about the environment back in March, April, May, June, 2020, we were super surprised that you guys deployed any capital at that time. At that time, we said, hey, we've been so unsuccessful in raising any VC dollars historically, and capital markets right now are extremely dried up, that our only source of capital from our perspective was to build something that was so valuable to the market, that was truly solving their problems, that customers were going to go ahead and pay, for, pay us for it. And so that's why by the time you and I have, or you guys have your first conversation with Matthew, that's why we already went and had customers. Yep. We said, we can't depend on external capital sources like VCs or banks for capital. And so we need to provide something that's so valuable, customers are going to pay us full price for it. And the other learning was, <clears throat> we went ahead and said, hey, before we go ahead and put any real resources into building this product or really building this infrastructure out any further, let's go ahead and see if we can get some pre-orders or contracts lined up ahead of time. And so we had the U.S. military car sharing program, which was called Ready Drive, which is like a six-figure contract. Yeah, that was a six-figure contract. Nice. That's about $250,000. And then what Matthew and I did was we also started going to car rental companies, 
in close proximity to airports. And we started pitching them on, hey, right now your insurance broker is just helping you get insurance coverage. They're not really helping you manage your risk, manage your policies, manage your claims. We not only want to help you secure your insurance, but we also want to help you with the other aspects of insurance so that you can spend more time focused on your business. And we ended up getting 24 companies to sign letters of intent. 19 of them ultimately convert to actual paying customers. And so that's where this customer obsession, this manic focus on solving a true real problem for the customer comes from. And then also I say, if we have any second, secondary obsession, it's around distribution. We're extremely strong believers that if your product is a commodity and insurance is largely a commodity, and obviously we try to go ahead and differentiate it so that we're not a me too product, but if your product is a commodity, you could, you could honestly build a monopoly if you have better distribution than your competition. That's very much a Peter Thiel framework that we, that we, we truly believe in. I mean, this and is so, also like, this is also one of the things that we always laugh at. Like imagine a startup in today's environment, what price they would be trying to raise at if they had 20 customers and one of them was the US military. And, and it's the like, validation for fundraising. I mean, that's something yeah, right. we talk so, about all the time. It's go out and validate that this is wanted in the market. Yeah, I mean, that's right. what, as, a, as an investor, we love to see traction. We love to yeah, see early like customers. So, we love to see revenue coming in the door. Like so, so many founders get fixated on, oh, so-and-so raise at seven or eight or $10 million yeah. capital seed round. I have, to, I have to anchor towards that. Three years, less than three years ago, Michael and I raised from you guys and NetSuite Ventures legitimate investors on like 1.8 mil cap, and we had traction. And the reason I bring that up is because it's a perfect example of one, like you're better off focusing on just selling customers and getting access to the resources you need to make 100%. that vision become a reality, as opposed to wasting six or 12 months trying to convince investors that your idea with no traction or product is worth seven or eight million. And so I, those are one of the things founders just over-optimized for. And I think that was one of the things that we did really well on. It was just like, focus on distribution. If you can't build the product yet, go get POs to share purchase orders to prove that this is something that people want. And then just go do whatever you need to get the resources. Um, if the company is actually going to be valuable, you can make up for the lost equity for the lower valuation down the line in the Series A or B or C. But like, too many founders are too fucking fixated on the price for literally just an idea. I get it when you have traction and stuff, but... But early on... Not even a question. And the other thing I think a lot of founders underestimate is how long a process it can be and arduous a process, how distracting a process raising money can be. You guys got the money quick and built the business. And and was it a... Yeah, you're asking strangers for money. It's like, it's a weird process. So was it a pivot from the original business? You guys shut down the original business and then start Lula as it is today. Yeah, so we know that business dead. Dead. Okay, so new, no. new, new co. No, so we never. This is something that I mean, it's been controversial. With people who are like, "Oh, we can't believe you guys didn't do this." We probably have a much higher net worth. I would be worth. <laughs> I would be worth twice the amount I'm worth. I don't regret it, not for one bit. So we had raised about six hundred twenty thousand dollars for that previous business, and and so. The, the the perspective that Matthew and I took was, hey, we have this new idea, we have this new company, basically this new product and these new opportunities, but none of that would have been possible without our early investors or our early supporters. And so Matthew and I just decided that we would go ahead and take the equity hit ourselves. And the other thing, and this is one of the reasons why- Wow, that's Matthew, impressive, yeah, guys. That, that really is, is super impressive. It really we, is. We have, uh, we have, we have that, um, we have the boss to do a lot of stuff. We don't have a boss to call people and tell them we lost your money. And so that's why Mike and I are just so fixated on like, we're going to keep everybody in. We're not going to recap and we're going to make everybody a shit ton of money. I mean, yeah, that's, that's not balls. That's integrity, boys. That's, that's what that is. Yeah. Well, we, this is, this is the thing. Look, objectively, and at the time, Matthew and I were very much aware of this. Objectively, you can go ahead and say, hey, these guys are all early stage investors or they knew what they were getting. Yeah, sure. Show. Now, 
everybody I think would have been fine writing us off. As a matter of fact, all those investors in 2020 wrote us off. They just wrote us off as a loss. Now, Matthew and I, and this I think is an old school mentality, but Matthew and I grew up in a family and a culture in which if somebody gave you money, the expectation was that you were going to go ahead and return that money. Yeah. And so Matthew and I could not fathom, even today, one of the reasons we work extremely so hard, one of the reasons Matthew and I work so hard is because I, I, take, I take the role of being a steward of your capital extremely, extremely serious. And I cannot fathom. It would be just as bad as losing a loved one, calling you guys or calling our investors in general and saying, yeah, we lost your money. It's one of the reasons why one of our company values is frugality. We still fly Spirit and Frontier <laughs> Airline, and what do you call it? My girlfriend, funny enough, she took a she took a trip with me not too long ago, and I stayed in a shitty little inn, and she's probably never going to travel again because it's <laughs> that's the way that we travel because we had to work so hard for this capital, and we want to make sure that that we appreciate it, we love it. Like uh, it sounds silly, but like we treat that capital like a child. We want to take care of it. We want to cherish it. Well, and, uh, I, to interrupt you for a second, on our side as investors, when we, you guys are the poster child for caring about your investors and, and what you just said, Michael, and, and you're going to give them their money back and you're going to make them money and, and you're going to work your ass off to do that. We'd love to see that as investors. Not all founders take that approach. Yeah. A lot of them take the approaches, you know, you're lucky to invest in me. And you guys have so much money, and if we lose your money, and it's they don't part even, of the game. they don't they don't even communicate with us as often as they should. And, yeah. But we can almost when we look at that, you can almost predict their success based on those things. 100%. The people like you guys that take that that commitment of taking capital that you've got to return it, and with it, and you, and you, and you that's really meaningful to you. Uh, I we've never done that. The the the. Uh, the analysis, analysis of, of it, but, it, but I, I can pretty much yeah. guarantee the correlation is there. Exactly. And, and so fast forward to where you guys are now. I mean, companies raised over 50 million in capital. I think the number is right. Yeah. Companies worth a few hundred million dollars now. It's a hell of yeah. a story. That's a great story. Congratulations, guys. Really. The other thing I, I will go ahead and add on, because this is something I try to tell founders, and it is something that that... Matthew and I do give a lot of thought to, and again, this is not going ahead and brown nosing here or anything, but it is something Matthew and I do care a lot about, which is I think oftentimes in the Valley or just in general, founders are told it's all about, it's all about enterprise value. It's all about the market cap, right? And I think when you go ahead and your primary focus, your primary objective is just going ahead and maximizing the enterprise value, well, what does that actually mean? When you're maximizing enterprise value, or you're just so fixated on that, well, you could go ahead and get insane valuations, but what does that rough stack actually look like? One of the things that Matthew and I are extremely excited about is that we actually look at what was the price per share that Florida funders or Founders Fund got into, and what's the price per share today? Like that to us is something that we really do concern ourselves with, which is price per share. What's the actual return on investment that you guys are going to get when preferred stock converts to common stock at the IPO. I mean, so that's the level of granularity and foresight that Matthew and I try to go ahead and take capital, capital structure, fundraising. We take all of those things into account as we're running the day-to-day -day of the business. The other thing is like, we're very self-aware. Like I think that's one of the other things too. Like my, when I realized we're two kids from a small farm in Kendall that come from an immigrant family. Like none of this, like none of this was on the right, was on, uh, none of the writing was on the wall for us. Like when we got out of high school, we both went to community college. We worked our way to Babson, which is to many an unknown school. And so it's not like we had this incredible story of Stanford graduates or anything like we always had a lot of things against us. And so the fact that we had people that took a chance on us when we had nothing but an idea and some passion behind it. Like it means so much to us. And that's why we're so ride or die for those people who could have easily said no, but they took the chance on those two kids from the small farm. Yeah. I didn't know you were from a farm. I knew you were, uh, 
immigrants. Your parents were immigrants, and what a, what a great story! You 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 are the American dream. I'm sure you've been told that. And it, what yeah. what a, what role models you are for other founders, other entrepreneurs, and the lessons you shared with oh, it's they're so just so so invaluable. Yeah. And, and how old are you guys now? What? <laughs> 27. 27. Very, very impressive, guys. Congrats, congrats. Tom, you want to dive a little? I know you had some questions about the business. Why don't you dive into that? Yeah, well, we'll update the, 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 our listeners on where you're at now. So we got the early, the history, and obviously you, you've come a long way in a relative, in a, from an investor standpoint, a relatively short period of time. So yeah. uh, you just, there. by the way, you folks listening and watching may not know this, they're in their Palo Alto office, which they just opened. So they've expanded out to California. Uh, how many employees you have? What's, what's going on with the business? How many customers? Kind of fill, fill the audience in on that. Yeah, so it's been, I mean, and and sometimes we're, we're quiet and, and that often scares investors during these times. But Matthew and I, I always have, we have we have a, a banner in the wall, on the wall now when you walk into the Lula office. And we basically have two rules at Lula. The first rule, you hear me, you see me mention this in the, in the investor updates is, Rule number one at Lula is if it doesn't improve the customer experience or drive the business forward, don't pay attention to it. The second rule is it's okay to go ahead and pay attention to the market or at least be cognizant or aware of the market. But in the short term, the stock market or just the market in general is a voting machine and the long term, it's a weighing machine. And so, again, that just goes back to focus on your customers, focus on distribution, focus on solving their problems. And over the course of 5, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you're going to go ahead and build a huge company. Now, directly answering your question, we really started working on this in mid-2020. So late 2020, early 2021, that's when you can arguably say that we launched. But 2021 was our first the product. Year. The product that we launched in like September 2020, I, I didn't even know if you can call it a product. I, re- I remember that product. <laughs> that was, it was so, I mean, everything was automated. A minimal, right? almost viable product. <laughs> you know, it's funny when people talk about artificial intelligence and they're like, is it artificial intelligence or is it actual Indians? Like, what does AI actually stand for? <laughs> That's a lot of what Lula was in the early days, which was Matthew and I, or one of our interns or a team member just working with us behind the scenes to just make everything happen beautifully. Like, oh my God, that was so fast. How do you guys build those automation? It's like Michael and I have notifications on our phone so that when something happens, we can press a button. Yeah. But anyway, so 2021 was our first full year in business. And just so everybody's aware of how Lula monetizes today. Today, Lula, we have 12 month contracts with our customers. We charge them a monthly subscription fee. And then recently, we went ahead and actually came out with a consumption-based model. So most of our revenue today is subscription-based revenue. So if our customers have 10 trucks or 10 cars, then we go ahead and charge them a monthly subscription fee per unit. And then more recently, we came out with a consumption-based model. Now, in terms of how fast the business has grown, 2021... Let's also give the listeners a better sense of what it is that we actually do. So we provide... We provide... our buzzword of choice is insurance infrastructure. And so if you're a big buyer of insurance, you need technology in order to screen your customers, to manage your policies, to monitor your claims, and you'll sometimes want to actually get an insurance policy. And so we provide all the software to do all to manage all your insurance workflows. And then we recently got licensed. So if you want to get insurance too, we now monetize off that as well. Love that. And so, and so when Michael talks about the 12 month contracts, it's a 12 month contracts for providing that insurance infrastructure. And visually, what does that look like? Visually, that looks like we essentially become your insurance team or your insurance division, we become your claims team, your risk management team. All of those functions now you go ahead and outsource through Lula. And that's and great because promise. nobody likes dealing with insurance. And nobody really yeah. knows how it works. Yeah, and the value proposition there is, hey, we're able to go ahead and help you reduce insurance-related expenses. So if we can help you reduce your premiums, that's great. But really, we can also help you reduce insurance-related insurance expenses. So if before Lula, you have a claims team of 10 people, now with Lula, you may only need a claims team of two people. If before Lula, you have a product and engineering team building out your risk management functions, now with Lula, you no longer need that. So. That's really the value proposition. More than anything, we help our customers save money, 
put more money, time, energy into their core business. And so getting to where we are today, 2021 was our first real full year in business. We ended up getting 99 companies to work with us. By February of 2022, so just about 15, 16 months ago, we were at 99 companies. February 2022 is when we finally hit like a, around 100 customers. And then ever since we hit 100 customers in the last 15 months, we've essentially 40 x yeah, we have essentially 40x the business, so, so growth has been quite crazy. Yeah, growth growth has been insane. So since February of last year, we went from servicing about 100 companies. Today, we service close to 4,000 companies. So these wow. Are close to 4,000 companies. That love we that growth. Yeah, that's a growth rate we love to see. <laughs> and how many how many team members? How big? How many employees you guys got now? Wait, I'm going to tell you something that you're going to even like. You're going to like even more. We went early 2021 and early 2022. We were a few hundred thousand dollars in monthly recurring revenue. Monthly recurring revenue has just about 21x since February of last year. And we've done it with a pretty lean team. So that's one of the other things that Michael and I pay quite a bit of attention to is revenue per employee. And so we've been able to now do, we do millions on a monthly basis in terms of net revenue. And it's with a team of, we just surpassed a hundred employees. Yeah. And wow. so that's like, that's, that's another thing too. Like I remember when we first, when money was free two or three years ago, I literally remember investors telling us um, something along the lines, like you're likely gonna end up having seven to 10 employees for every million in ARR. And there are companies with our same ARR, the ARR that we have today, I remember looking back on, they had three or four or 500 employees. And so it's been really incredible to see what you can do when you have a small team, but when you hire eight players who are gonna have incredible, incredibly productive outputs relative to the rest of the market. And so that's like one of the things, Mike and I still interview everybody um, as a final stage to make sure that they're up to par with the standards that we want. Yeah. So in terms of just what things have been like the last year and a half, two years, what I mentioned went from a few hundred thousand dollars in monthly revenue. We've since then 21x that. The amazing thing is, is gross margin has actually expanded through that period of time. So we continue to get improved unit economics. Uh, burn has actually, uh, actually um, dropped consecutively for more than six quarters in a row. So we continue to not only grow revenue and improve gross margin profile, but actually burn profile on the business continues to largely get more and more reduced. Customer base is almost 40 X in the last 15 to 16 months. And then we're right now we have clear sight to profitability over the next two to four quarters in terms of Great. in terms of fundraising. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. In terms of fundraising, we two to Saxon's point, uh, we've raised at this point, if you include the equity capital, we've raised about $45 million in equity capital. And this is obviously not only from Florida funders, but from some of the best investors in the world as well. Yeah. In Founders Fund, Coastal Ventures, SoftBank, Bill Ackman, Steve Pagbuka. I mean, a really interesting stat. I was looking at the numbers the other day, almost 2% of America's billionaires are now investors directly in Lula. And that's just insane to me. Yeah. Then, <laughs> that's really yeah. cool. And then in addition to that, in addition to that, we just went ahead and secured $15.5 million line of credit. It's not venture debt. It's actually a line of credit from, from Silicon Valley Bank. And so, so one thing I'll just add there quickly, and this is another lesson to a lot of founders that I wish we would have had. If you focus on building a business that not that does most founders and most VCs are going to tell you focus on gross margin, gross margin, gross margin. Gross margin means shit if it's eighty percent gross margin and your net operating margin is like fifteen or twenty percent. If you focus on actually having good operating margins or net margins, you're going to be able to utilize a lot of different capital structures, yeah. even as a software business, that are not diluting your equity. If you take into account, I, I forget who did it, but I saw a study, and it, I might be bullshit because I saw it off of Twitter, off, off of Twitter. <laughs> I saw something that said like, most venture capital uh, investments are the equivalent of taking on some sort of debt at a 30 plus percent interest rate when you see how much it actually costs you if the business hits. 
And so that's why one of the things that Mike and I like to do, because we've been fortunate enough to have pretty solid operating margins and we have a pathway to profitability, we like to use different types of capital structures and uh, lines of credit is a great way if you have a if you have your unit economics on point. Yeah, yeah absolutely. If you can fund the company with debt, if, if you can get debt in, in an early stage company, it, it definitely uh, helps you uh, from be getting diluted and keeps you guys uh, larger ownership positions. And, and uh, But a lot of companies struggle with that because like you're saying, they don't have the gross margins or the, and more importantly the net margins to get the debt. Yeah. So, yeah. hey guys, we're running out of time here. So uh, we're gonna- Lightning round? Yeah, lightning round. And then we'll wrap up. This has been great. You guys. Absolutely yeah, amazing, one, guys. I mean, it's really. We'll do, a, we'll do another one after the billion round. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what we need. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. So five quick questions. And just uh, and you can both answer them. Kind of one, two word answers. So who wins the uh, AI battle? Uh, Chat GPT, Bard, or, or some startup like Lula somewhere? Lula. Lula. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Um, where do you see the price of Bitcoin in five years? Is it zero? Is it where it's at today? What's that? 30, 30,000? 30, yeah. Is it, or is it 500,000? What's Kathy Wood say? It's going to be like 500,000 or something. I'd say, probably, I'd say it'd probably double. If you look at its growth over like the last five or six years, it's gone up quite a bit. Um, so I'm going to be, I'm going to, I'm going to say it'll be probably closer to 50. We got a bull. My, my answer is I don't know. I, just I don't think any of us know, but <laughs> we're trying. All right. So, is is Lula? I heard you mention an IPO in there. Is Lula a public company within the next three years? I think next three to five years for sure. I'd say probably closer to five, just because there's a lot of stuff that we want. There's a lot of groundwork we want to lay these next three to five years. And I know IPO, you probably have to start thinking about. You have to start setting up two to three years out. And so I'd say probably three years we'll start getting ready for IPO, and then five from years. a revenue perspective, I think the next twenty four. I mean, if you look at, we're, I'll, I'll be quick. But you look at. IPO uh, software companies and, and that, that went public the last 18 to 24 months before we, we had this, this dry cycle. When you look at last trading 12 months of revenue, typically it was around $198 million. So from a revenue perspective, I think we're there in the next 18 to 36 months. Uh, I feel fairly confident about that. It's more so because it makes sense for us to go ahead and, and actually go public over the next three to five years. And uh, obviously that's largely a function of what does the market actually look like? Yeah. So, but certainly we do want to go ahead and go public. And actually, not only do we want to be a publicly traded company, my goal is ideally we don't even need to do an, an initial public offering. Ideally, it's a direct listing. Like, that's my objective. Oh, there you go. Cool. All right. So who who wins uh, or does Threads have a, a chance against Twitter? Do you see this, this Threads? I don't, I don't think so. I mean, it's hard to bet against Zuck. Dude has three different companies with a billion dollar with a billion plus users, but I think Twitter wins. I think Twitter wins. I think inherently they're just different products. I very much use Instagram. I very much use Twitter, and and the people I interact with on Twitter are very different than the people I interact with on Instagram. And I I struggle with thinking I'm going to interact with my friends on Instagram the same way I interact with people on Twitter. And yeah. I think that's a challenge a lot of people are facing right now. Apologies for fucking up the lightning round. Uh, no, you're good. You're I good. hope you have the follow-up question to this. Yeah, who wins, Elon or Zuck in the cage fight? <laughs> Zuck, he's a beast. I think everybody's been on Zuck. And then last lightning round question. We're both big golfers. I don't know if you guys are golfers. You guys golfers at all? So it's pretty. No, we're not, but I want to get into it. So, so, so it's British Open week. So it's the last major of the year. Who do you like? The three favorites are Rory, Scotty Scheffler, and John Rahm. I know, bro. I, I literally know nothing. I was, <laughs> I was putting something out of my ass, but I, I don't know either. I know Rory, and and I know Rory because I mean, he, I think he has pretty. His name is well known. He's a pretty he tech. He won last week. Too. Well, he won last week at the Scottish Open. He's also a tech investor. He's an he's an investor and in workday. Who's the underdog? I'll go for the underdog. Ah, uh, there's a bunch of underdogs. Oh uh, yeah, I mean everybody's an underdog after those three. Who yeah. do you think, Tom? Yeah, Rory's three. Who's the underdog there? Um, those three, I would say Rom is the, yeah, he's Rom the Spaniard. Is, he yeah. has not been playing well recently, even though I think he still might be the number one ranked or two ranked player in the world. 
So who do you like? I like Rory because of the way he he won the Scottish Open last week. If you watched it, with an amazing clutch finish, finishing birdie, birdie, in unbelievably windy conditions. I like Rory too. After we saw him blow it last year at the Open, I think it's his year to make yeah, it. Yeah, we were at the British Open last year at St Andrews, but uh, this, this is his year this year. Yeah. I think. All right. Well, thanks, guys. This has been wonderful. Absolutely uh, amazing, guys. Yeah, really appreciate. It. I want to close by saying to our listeners out there, if you're interested in learning more about Florida funders, just go out to our portal, floridafunders.com. If you're a founder like these guys and you're looking for funding, we have a very simple application process. Take you about five minutes to get in our queue and our process. And if you're an investor, we have a whole side of the, the portal that's designed for you to be able to look at companies like Lula if you want to invest. Guys, thank you so much. We'll catch you back when you get to Miami and congrats on all the success. Thank you. Thanks, guys. See ya. Thanks for spending your time with Skin in the Game VC today. If you want to learn more about investing in early stage tech like a venture capitalist, be sure to visit the Florida Funders website at floridafunders.com. Join our angel network at no cost and get access to Florida Funders VC vetted investment opportunities in the next great breakout tech companies.